Hello and welcome to the EMG Health Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, we are diving into the gut with a rather unique diving instructor. With me today is Dr. Oliver Grundman, a clinical associate professor in the Department of Medicinal Chemistry at the University of Florida in Gainesville, which is home to the Florida Gators football team, although he lives in Chandler, Arizona, and teaches remotely. He's also the faculty advisor of an online graduate education program in pharmaceutical chemistry and clinical toxicology. Originally from Germany, in 2004, Oliver earned his bachelor's degree in pharmacy from the University of Munster in his homeland. He then went on to pursue his PhD in pharmaceutical sciences, whilst also, and very impressively, undertaking a master's in forensic toxicology at the University of Florida. Dr. Grumman's research interests include new treatment options for anxiety, depression, and diseases of the central nervous system, a topic that we're going to delve into. Over the years, he's been invited to give multiple lectures and presentations tackling issues such as drug dependence, the use of the Kratom plant in the context of substance abuse disorders, and drug development for COVID-19, something very topical, of course. He has over 100 publications that reflect his extensive background in gastroenterology and specifically the gut microbiome. Dr. Grumman also serves as Secretary of the American College of Clinical Pharmacology and received several awards, including the Janet K. Poli Award for Innovation and Leadership in Distance Education, awards for mentoring undergraduate students, and the University of Florida Open Access Award for editorial services. Talking of service, he also serves as a reviewer for several medical journals, judging local college science fairs, and being on the editorial board of several journals, including EMJ's Gastroenterology. Having lived in Arizona and Florida, Oliver tells me that he's very sensitive to cold weather, which apparently his German friends (laughs) describe a tad unfairly as whiny. Oliver's original plan was to study, I believe, chemistry, German, and music, and he planned to be a very different type of teacher. He and his partner have two little girls who keep them on their toes, and although it's early in the morning as we're speaking, uh, he's in Arizona, I'm in London, uh, they may wake up, so if you hear something, uh, that's what it is. Oliver, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Segier. It's my pleasure. And please, it's Jonathan. Let's start uh, with the fact that you're in the United States. What what made you go to the USA after your initial degree in, in Germany? And, and after completing your PhD at, at the University of Florida, you decided to stay and establish your career there. What, what was behind those decisions? I'm always intrigued by how people end up where they are. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily intentional. And I think that's what life often is about. You come to a crossroads and... Uh, you just have to make a decision and delve into something new, as they say, an adventure. Life is really an adventure. And that's how it was for me. I, During my pharmacy studies, I met my PhD advisor, who was still at the time in Germany. So she happens to also be German. Um, and she just asked me, hey, do you, do you want to do your PhD in Gainesville, Florida? And I've never heard of Gainesville, Florida before. So I had to do some geographical mapping and uh, Google Maps was already around at the time, I believe. I, I don't remember. 
so yeah, that's that's what got me into uh, into my career, and it's just has been a, a very interesting adventure and 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 ride since then. It, it's often the case, isn't it, that um, we meet someone who's very influential, and and it's them rather than the surroundings or whatever that that takes you somewhere. And you talk about a, a fork in the road. One of my favorite uh, personalities from recent American history, I guess was a baseball player named Yogi Berra who said, mm. for people not familiar, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. I mm. love that. Um, so what, what, other than your, um, uh, your advisor, what, what inspired you to pursue the career you've chosen? And specifically, what drove you uh, into gastroenterology and then later refining working on the microbiome in the gut? Yeah, it, it was actually my graduate research um, that kind of formed my initial curiosity uh, because I, I was studying the CNS activity of natural products. And in that process, we found that one of the proposed active uh, compounds uh, through isolation and through animal experiments, we, we reached that conclusion, is actually active by first being metabolized by gut microbiome, by gut bacteria. And then that metabolite enters the bloodstream and acts on the CNS. And that was fascinating to me. I never had thought outside the box to just look at, you know, a compound, a natural compound. And of course, they have been around for millions of years. We evolved together with them. Uh, and uh, just like the gut microbiome. And there we are. Uh, this is actually the, the active metabolite. I'm always, always fascinated by the transition of science into the mainstream media. And, you know, everyone gets very excited and people talk about, I think inappropriately, they a lot of hyperbole about the gut microbiome. I'm sure it plays a role in several diseases. And we're, we're going to come on to that. But first, I saw something um, in, in, in your resume. You wrote an article, I think, last year that discussed the regulation of dietary supplements and nutraceuticals and assessing the current quality. I recently did a podcast where I discussed some of my views on vitamin or vitamin use and misconceptions about these products. Give us some, like an oversight of where you stand on the use of, uh, of these supplements and we'll see, we'll see how close together we are. <laughs> so I believe that supplements do have a place uh, in, in, in not necessarily treatment, but together as a holistic approach to seeing the patient as a whole, because it's clear that patients are taking these products. Uh, in the United States, about 50, more than 50% of US adults are taking a, a vitamin, mineral, uh, or a supplement. Uh, so as a, as a medical professional, I, I, I cannot ignore that. It cannot be completely ignored uh, because of drug interactions, because of the impact that it can have on pharmacotherapy. Does somebody who is otherwise healthy need to take a multivitamin? No, they don't. If they want to spend their money on it, I can tell them you don't need to take a multivitamin as a pharmacist or as a medical professional. But if they really want to take that care of themselves to feel better, placebo effect, that, that's fine. Uh, we, we get all of our nutrition if we eat a well-balanced diet, that much is for certain. Yeah, I think you and I are, are, are very close. I've used the term that it, a lot of these things just make your urine expensive. Um, <laughs> but, but there are things like, like vitamin D um, 
for instance, and by the way, I'm using the American pronunciation of the word, which I believe is the correct pronunciation, given that they are vital amines. So let's say vitamin D, especially during the time of COVID, um, that it probably does have, have some applicability, or maybe the international and national standards of what we need are playing wrong and we need to rethink the standards, yes? Or diets get a bit, you know, screwy. There's a lot of very screwy diets out there, right? Yeah, I, I would definitely agree that. And when it comes to the regulation, something that was basically mentioned in the article that you cited, that you mentioned, uh, it's clear that in the United States, it's a mess at the moment. When it yeah. comes to dietary supplement regulation, to herbal supplement regulation, it has lots of loopholes in it. Um, we need better quality oversight. But when we look to to Europe, we, we have a better system where it is more regulated, where folks may, might get a little bit better quality for the product they are grabbing from, from the aisle or, you know, getting from the pharmacist or elsewhere. Yeah, sure. Now, I did mention in my introduction the Kratom plant, and I did have to look it up because I didn't even know how to pronounce it. Apparently, it's Kratom in Europe and Kratom in uh, the United States. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I stumbled across uh, Kratom, and I pronounce it like you do. <laughs> when a student of mine who was working in, in the legal sphere in a, in a drug laboratory, in a crime uh, laboratory in uh, Miami at the time, uh, brought up a case that he encountered a, a fatality where a relatively young person uh, was in a car accident, and he had taken Kratom. Uh, and it was relatively new at the time. Uh, in 2016, uh, and then I, I I looked into it, and, and like you, I had never heard of it. Uh, so I, I I delved into it, and it's really fascinating the traditional and um, and ethnopharmacological uses of the plant, um, how it was has been used for, and also actually it it is used uh, traditionally to treat diarrhea because it has this opioid like effect. Some of the compounds in it act on opioid receptors but differently from classical opioids. That's fascinating. I don't want to go too far down the line of uh, plants that have psychoactive effects, but I am fascinated by ayahuasca. Is that something that you've, um, you've come across in your travels and the fascination it seems to have amongst a certain part of society? Yes, I, I've definitely heard of it and I have uh, read some interesting uh, ethnopharmacological and ethnobotical, ethnobotanical, sorry, uh, stories about it. Um, I mean, the, the 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 fact that it has two components, basically, you need two plants together, and how this emerged in indigenous populations uh, is fascinating to me. Basically, the active compound, the psychoactive compound, is DMT in it, and then you need something that. Uh, prevents its degradation in the periphery before it can enter the CNS. Uh, it's fascinating how indigenous folks figured that out. It, it, I, I find it really interesting how we come across these plants and then utilize them. Yeah. Well, and again, I think it's similar to the vitamin debate that um, <laughs> it, it gets credited with all sorts of uh, activity that is probably not appropriate. And there are dangers to these things because any... Any medication that has a biologic effect is going to have off-target effects. So uh, that's a fair, fair statement. That is definitely a fair statement. Uh, when we look at our history of drug development, we have a bunch of drugs that also have off-target effects, right? If you look at the 
tricyclic antidepressants, if we look at various other, that's where adverse effects come from. So that's why polypharmacy, the use of multiple drugs, is something that is of great interest uh, to, to know about. Right. So um, changing tack a bit, you're, you're currently the secretary of the American College of Clinical Pharmacology, as I mentioned. What are some of your goals during your, your leadership tenure? Yeah, uh, the American College of Clinical Pharmacology is, is one of the oldest uh, clinical pharmacology professional societies in the United States, it was founded in the 1960s. And I'm, I'm really grateful for having the opportunity to be uh, the secretary. And basically, my role is uh, primarily administrative, although I have expanded on that a little bit uh, to uh, implement uh, the strategic plan of the society. So we have a very diverse membership consisting of academia, clinicians, um, of uh, industry folks and regulatory affairs. So we've got quite a few members from the FDA uh, and from other regulatory bodies around the world, EMA and the like, um, and really bringing the focus on clinical pharmacology and its importance in drug development and clinical practice is something that uh, we we are really engaging in as a society. Well, we should keep a close eye on your uh, your achievements. Um, I mentioned again in the in in the beginning the gut microbiome, and you know I said it gets a lot of attention both in the scientific and lay media. Can you give us like a a thirty thousand foot view of where we are with understanding the role it plays, specifically as it relates to the central nervous system. Because at first blush, you'd say, okay, so in your colon, you've got a bunch of bugs and it affects the way you you think or behave. How much is, separate the, the fact from the fiction for us, if you can. I think we are still in the early stages of completely understanding what is going on, but I would also not put all my eggs to say in, in the basket of uh, treat the, the gut microbiota uh, to solve uh, other issues related to the CNS. I think it's a multifactorial and uh, multi-component. Um, it's one factor that contributes to uh, health and disease. Uh, where we stand right now is basically we know that the enteric nervous system, there is a a connection when the CNS, for example, when, when the adrenergic uh, release happens, when the sympathetic nervous system is activated, that uh, adrenaline actually spills over into the intestines and certain bacteria have evolved to sense that and then respond to it, uh, either in a good or a bad way, causing either localized inflammation, acting up or uh, soothing kind of through the generation of uh, small molecules, uh, mainly fatty acids, uh, that serve as uh, as the the fuel for enterocytes. So we're still at the very early stages. Uh, we we can do some principal component analysis to look at okay, here's a particular bacterial strain that relates to obesity or diabetes or um, inflammatory bowel disorders. Uh, but it's it's all still not very well focused, I would say, at this point. But there is a connection that has been made uh, between the CNS, its signaling, its activation, and the uh, specific gut microbiota. Yeah, well, again, um, one, one to watch closely. I, I know that, um, again, there's a lot of pseudoscience that gets waffled, and you see advertisements for all sorts of supplements to change your microbiome. I mean, it's like, well, 
why would we do that when we don't even know what the right thing is? So again, switching tack a little bit, climate change is thankfully now on everyone's mind and there are healthcare implications everywhere you look. Like a recent conversation with a respiratory physician about this. Is climate change affecting the gut microbiome in the context of my last question or is that a, a bridge too far? We, I think we can say that climate change will eventually impact all of our um, food sources. Um, and I think that is the more relevant link to make. It, because the gut microbiome is shaped by what we eat, ultimately. And um, that is something that will likely change. We see, see now in, in, with the war in Ukraine that, uh, for example, the, the, the wheat basket or the you know, uh, certain resources may be in short supply and it does affect uh, the way that we will eventually consume foods it, it, it has been shown that um, for example a, a diet high in in sugars carbohydrates does impact the gut microbiome and if we have all of this processed food uh, that might lead to to particular changes but we do not necessarily know how subtle changes may impact uh, the gut microbiome yet. Yeah, the, the rule of unintended consequences. I, I was seeing somewhere that Ukraine produces something like 40 to 50% of, of wheat for a, um, a large number of countries. So there'll be knock-on effects. Just, yes. just awful, just awful. So again, staying with the microbiome, what, if, if you had a massive pot of research money, what sort of things would you be funding to, to fill the gaps in our knowledge relating to the impact of um, the gut microbiome and our brain specifically or, or general health? So uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I, I wish I could say that I had a ton of research funding. I think one important matter is to actually address how changes in the gut microbiome affect or symbiotic relationship, this duality, how it affects inflammation, how it affects local uh, processing in the gut intestines when we talk about energy processes, because it, it serves as an energy source for the enterocytes. And we know that in IBDs, for example, uh, that a fecal transplant can help to reduce symptoms or even treat the patient as a, as a viable treatment option now. There, there is definitely something in regards to looking at particular bacterial strains, bacterial species that seem to make a person prone for developing a, an inflammatory disorder or how this impacts the CNS and the periphery as well. So the CNS in particular, because of what I mentioned, that adrenaline release and cortisol release, which all play a role also in, in inflammatory processes and localized and systemic inflammatory processes, how that might actually be a dual way of communication of regulating that with the help of potential gut microbiota. Again, only one piece of the puzzle in why somebody develops IBD or why somebody develops depression but there, there is something that I think we can look further into that might benefit patient care in the end. Yeah, I've always, you know, there's sort of like conventional wisdom or old wives' tales, as they say. And there's a, there's a, a joke that always amused me, which is, you know, bring chocolate and no one gets hurt. <laughs> Maybe there's truth in it, but there are certain foods that do make us feel better because of the microbiome. Well, let's shift away from, from bugs in your gut and talk about another bug 
uh, the novel coronavirus. How has COVID-19 affected your work? I mean, every expert I meet tells me how, how their world has been changed by coronavirus. And I was just learning the other day uh, about the impact on mitochondria that might explain some of the sequelae like breathlessness and exhaustion in so-called long COVID. Are there any special impacts on, on the gut, the microbiome, that might explain some of the neurological impacts of COVID, do you think? That's a, a great question. And uh, what the research to date indicates is that long COVID or the likelihood of long COVID resulting from either an initial infection or a reinfection um, may also be related to uh, inflammation in uh, the gut, actually. We don't know necessarily because we see certain gastrointestinal uh, uh, effects uh, from a COVID infection. We still need a, more data in regards to understanding how that can lead to potential inflammatory disorder of the gastrointestinal system. And it's not well defined because it's not something like celiac disease or, or uh, IBDs where we have a lot of data available, but it seems to lead to inflammation that is a result of, of basically the, the virus uh, and the immune system impact. Um, how that affects then the CNS is less well understood. We know that long COVID can have uh, CNS uh, effects, but that is not well understood yet. I'm going to go back to a prior question but not focused on the microbiome. What, what research questions are awaiting your focus in the near future? Again, you've got unlimited cash. <laughs> so I, I would say uh, my, my focus has not been so much on, on COVID, to be honest, but COVID obviously will impact um, how we conduct research. Specifically, I, I would be focusing on the impact of uh, certain nutritional components, uh, the diet, how it influences the gut microbiome composition, uh, and how that then relates to the development. So it would be basically an epidemiological study looking at, at fecal uh, samples, and uh, then looking at how this relates to the development of, for example, depression, if somebody is more likely to develop a depressive disorder, if they uh, ingest certain foods, or if their, their lifestyle and their diet um, have a certain composition that lends itself more towards developing a depressive disorder. But again, under, under the premise that it, it would be one component, I think that certain bacterial strains have definitely a, a positive contribution in regards to health and well-being, whereas others are either neutral or the, it needs to be repressed in a certain manner in order to avoid inflammation and potentially other conditions that can emerge from that. We all have a legacy, or we all hope to have a legacy, I should say. And I know that encouraging younger people into science is um, a commendable part of your uh, behavior, and you enjoy judging local science fairs for colleges. So can you share us one of your favorite wins and why you think it's important for folks like you to get involved with these events and be role models? I, here in, in, in actual Arizona, we have Intel, uh, the chip manufacturer, the computer chip manufacturer, and uh, they are hosting a science fair every other year. They, they split it between San Diego and, uh, and, and Chandler of our places, or Phoenix, uh, I should say. And that fair is just an inspiration. There was uh, somebody 
who who won uh, I think one of these science fairs. I, I can't remember if it was the Intel Science Fair or, or an, another one um, that was looking at the, the the composition of how how antibiotics can be used, can be better used. So basically a dose optimization for antibiotics. And these are folks that are either in high school or in, in early stages of, of college, and they have already developed kind of a an entire research program with really well thought out goals and, and, and experiments. And just talking to these young people um, and and seeing their enthusiasm for science in general, no matter if if they then end up going into the medical sciences or in computer sciences or just STEM, the STEM field in general, science, technology, engineering, and, and mathematics, gives me so much hope and just is very inspiring to me as well to to see these young minds, these these really bright young minds pursue their interests with with such enthusiasm. Well, it's wonderful that you do that. Um, and as you'll hear on the podcast that I'm privileged to host, I know that you also host a podcast. Tell us about that in the University of Florida Center for Drug Addiction and Education, which is called, which is abbreviated to UF Care. And we'll put the link, um, addictionresearch.health.ufl.edu. We'll put that in the show notes so people can learn more about it. But tell us a bit about that. Thank you. Thank you for the cross-advertising, so to say. Yeah, so uh, UF Care has been around for quite some time. It started in the 1990s. And uh, the Center for uh, Drug Addiction and, and uh, Research and Education um, is really multidisciplinary. So we not only there are not only researchers that are looking at it from uh, drug development or uh, the the treatment development side, but also those who are in the social sciences, who are in public health, who are looking at epidemiology, uh, underlying um, contributing factors, and, and it's really this multidisciplinary nature that brings everybody together uh, that really makes it a very interesting and collaborative uh, center. So uh, the the podcast uh, is intended to introduce what are our faculty working on, uh, what is their research topic, not only for the scientific community, but also for the broader public uh, to show the many facets and uh, and aspects of addiction and substance use disorder and how it impacts uh, society as a whole, uh, not only the individual who actually develops a substance use disorder. It's something that's uh, very, very close to my heart and, and thank you for doing that. So as we approach the wrap up, I always like to ask a variant of this question. If you could have three wishes for the world your daughters will grow up in, um, in, in terms of health, what would those wishes be? That is uh, both a, a great question and a very challenging question. Uh, so for one, I, where I see us as healthcare providers and healthcare professionals right now is we are squeezed for time to care for individual patients. And I really wish that there was a, a way to allow us to be more engaged with our patients, to better understand what is going on sometimes uh, instead of classifying because of time restraints uh, a person down to a particular disease um, or you know, just treating 
with medication, the disease, instead of sometimes looking at the underlying underlying factors, contributing factors. The, the second wish would be uh, really to bring uh, society together uh, when it comes to climate change, which is a, a threat to all of us. Uh, and you brought it up uh, earlier that we cannot delay any longer. It will affect our health. It will affect lives, millions of lives, all of us. Uh, we, we cannot ignore that any longer. And, and uh, in the medical world, we we, we already see the impact uh, when it comes to starvation in certain countries. My, my third wish uh, would be to see uh, all of us uh, in, in the medical professions really have that transformative impact sometimes uh, where we work in our own little world and the patient leaves, leaves us or, you know, we, we only have so much time to spend, but really see the transformative uh, aspect of uh, and impact of what we are doing as as researchers as well as clinicians and i think that is something that we sometimes lose sight of when it comes to patient care well those are all uh, wonderful wishes and uh, i'm sure with uh, you bringing your daughters up uh, that they're going to be the very best possible versions of themselves. Dr. Oliver Grunman, thank you for sharing your thoughts and wisdom with us. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. Real pleasure. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've time for on this episode of the EMG Health Podcast. Until next time, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening. And please stay safe, stay well, stay curious.